going to ask you this morning to open your Bible right where you were to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I've entitled the message this morning, The Word Became Flesh. And it was deliberate because if you look at the celebration of the birth of Christ today, it is full of a lot of things. It's full of pageantry, ceremony, myth, festivities, gift-giving, shopping, boxes, wrappings, ribbons, bags, foods, cookies, desserts, family, friends, parties, sales, consumerism, materialism, drunkenness, lights, trees, and so much more. Anxiety fills the heart of many people as the day approaches of December 25th, consumed with what they haven't bought yet and for whom they haven't bought it. In our nation, you can't even, it's not even called Christmas, it's called the holidays, right? Holidays. That's an interesting one, which is pretty bad enough. For if we were to speak of the Advent, if we were to speak of the first coming of Jesus Christ, most people would look at us and go, what are you talking about? That's how distant the birth of Christ has come from the celebration of his birth. You know, our culture, I think about our culture over the years have done to the birth of Christ what Paul wrote in Romans when he said, professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This message is not going to be about whether or not you have a Christmas tree. And if it is, if that's what you think, then you're going to miss the point entirely. This message is going to be about Christ. Christ, that's what we're going to discuss. It's my desire for Christ to become preeminent in our heart and our minds during this time of the year. And then rather than immerse ourselves in a secular holiday with all of its trapping, that we as believers in Jesus Christ would immerse ourselves in Christ. There's a logical proposition, isn't that? You would think that would be awfully logical. And to do that, we must understand first the full impact and the meaning of Christ's first coming. We've got to understand that. We cannot miss this. So let us jump into the text that we, so that we will understand his glory, the wonder, the mystery of Christ's first coming. And the text, of course, that I have selected for today is John 1, 14. John 1, 14 reads as follows, and the, word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This first is found in the beginning of John's Gospel, and it is so power-packed with profound truth that sometimes we miss it. If you ask the average evangelical, can you tell me what is the, the trinity or the triunity of God? They say, well, you know, 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that's usually where it ends. But in the first chapter of John, John goes deep into who Christ is. And he goes to great lengths in the gospel to present Christ not merely as the Son of God, but to present Christ as God. And I believe that this verse celebrates the very meaning of Christ's first coming. So by dissecting this verse along with other scripture, I pray that we can understand three critical truths, three critical truths that we're going to get out of this text. Truth number one, Jesus became flesh. What does that mean? We need to understand that. Truth number two, Jesus Christ dwelt among us. What does that mean? What is the implication of that? And truth number three, Jesus Christ was the only begotten of the Father. Now, it's my contention that if we understand these three critical truths, that our Advent season can be filled with permanent joy, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and the glory of the Lord. And can I get an amen for that? Amen. You are awake. It's just not that your eyes are open. Praise God. Let's take a look at the first one. Jesus became flesh. And the Word became flesh, is what John says. Now, who is this Word? We've got to understand that. We don't know who the Word is. We don't know what John's speaking about here. To understand this in context, we must go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses a similar construct as Genesis 1.1, where it reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the question becomes, how did God create the heavens and the earth? Psalm 33, 6 tells us, By the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. By the word was the world created. Now John takes this Old Testament concept and uses the Greek concept of the word or the logos. Now the Greek concept was something that was eternal. It means divine reasoning. Something that was out there that was eternal. The divine mind. And he fuses the two together into the logos. Into the word. And declares that Jesus Christ is the word. I want you to get this because this is really critical. It's important. In John 1, 1, I want you to note the verb was. Okay? In the Greek, the word was is a verb, an action word. In John 1, 1, this speaks of the eternality, the eternal divine nature of Christ. Notice, if you put Jesus' name in the word, Jesus was in the beginning, Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. And the word that is used there for God in the Greek is theos. Theos. 
the full word for God. John confirms Jesus' divine nature in John 1.3. Look at John 1.3. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into a being. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, either I'm really dumb, or John is making a very expressed point. Paul echoes similar statements in Colossians 1.15. You don't have to turn there. The writer of Hebrews echoes similar statements in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3. The whole point of John 1, especially verses 1 through 3, is that Christ did not become divine. Christ was and is the eternal living God. This sets the stage for John 1.14. That's precisely the point that John is making. The beauty of the blessed triunity of God, the mighty three in one and the one in three. Volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on this. We don't have the time right now to get deeper into it. But the one important point here, we see Christ the eternal God and this eternal God will become flesh. And what does it mean when we say become flesh? Well, there are two questions that we must ask ourselves regarding this statement. First, how did the Word become flesh? That's important. We need to understand this. How did the Word become flesh? And the second is, why did the Word become flesh? Those are two critical questions we need to answer. Again, I go back to it. It all begins with the Word. And here, John uses the term, the Word became flesh, which emphasizes that Christ taking on humanity. I want to I say that again. The Word, the eternal Word, the Word that was in the beginning, the Word that was with God, the Word that was was God, the Word that caused all things to be created to come into existence, that very eternal Word, that very eternal God became flesh. He became flesh. Let me state that we cannot fully understand, and this is very, very, very true. We cannot fully understand this amazing work of redemption solely with our finite minds today. That exceeds our human capacity. However, that is not an excuse, but rather a fact. The depth and the magnitude of the singular act defies the logic of our human mind, but God has granted us the ability to understand what has been revealed to us in Scripture. But the depth of it runs much deeper. One of the things you see in Scripture constantly is you could see a concept, you could see a doctrine, you could see a theology. I'll take grace, for example, right? We could understand grace. We can have a definition of grace. 
God's unmerited favor, God's enablement of power for living. We can come to that place and understand it, but its truth is much more profound. And when you think about what God has done for you, if you are in Jesus Christ, when you think about what God has done for you, you know that the depth of that grace exceeds what you could rationalize. I don't think there's anybody on earth who could give a good explanation as to why did God save you? If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to go, I don't know. Which is why I find myself constantly saying the same thing over and over again, that I cannot get past grace. Theologically, I could define it. Theologically, I can understand it based on the revelation of the Word of God. But emotionally, spiritually, I cannot wrap my arms around the entirety and the immensity of God's grace. So it is with the Word becoming flesh. Yes, Jesus took upon Himself humanity. However, we do have some insight from Scripture that God has allowed us to peer into this mystery. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to call your attention to these two verses in Philippians chapter 2 that that come alongside and are part and parcel with this profound truth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, speaking of Jesus Christ, although He existed in the form of God. By the way, every Bible except the New World Translation reads the same, except they insert a God. There is no A here. It is speaking of Christ. Paul says in in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Although he existed in the form of God. Boy, that corresponds to John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here Paul says he existed in the form of God. By the way, that is the exact essential essence and nature to be divine you can't be partially divine you're either divine or you're not divine paul says although he existed in the form of god did not regard equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man Paul gives us a glimpse and tells us that Jesus, who existed in the form of God, emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? What did he empty himself of? You know, if Jesus came down direct from the throne of heaven, everyone who had looked at him in his essential nature would die. I want you to get that image. Everyone who would see the Son... In his glory, in his holiness, in his righteousness, any human eye that was cast upon that would die. The purity of God, the holiness of God contrasting itself against sinful humanity. By taking on human flesh, by allowing himself to be born of a woman, by taking on flesh and blood, Christ was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin 
But here is the point. The eternal, timeless God now took on flesh. Listen to me. The invisible became visible. The supernatural was now reduced to a human frame. The one that was dwelt in unapproachable splendor could now be apprehended, touched. And by Jesus taking on human flesh, he did not diminish his eternal essence, meaning Jesus never stopped being God. He never stopped being God. So to answer the first question that I pose, how did the Word become flesh? Paul states he emptied himself by taking on human flesh. At the first coming of Jesus, at the incarnation, although Christ took on human flesh, he never ceased to be fully God, but rather became God in human flesh, undenied deity in the form of man. Of this the prophet spoke. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 said this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Now let me just make this clear. Jesus' name isn't Jesus Emmanuel Christ. Emmanuel is his title. So a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his title is going to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophet was, was proud to speak. He goes on to say in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice these titles now. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Not a mighty God. Mighty God. Eternal Father. Prince of peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It will be accomplished by God. God will be wrapped in human flesh. Notice that the prophet ascribes to this child all the titles of deity. Now we come to answer the second question I pose to you. Why? Why did the Word become flesh? And the answer could be found in one word. Redemption. Redemption. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ came to redeem the human race from the bondage, from the corruption of sin, from the curse of the fall. Listen, this is no trivial fact. 
the reason we exist, the reason we have a church today, the reason we proclaim the gospel is because Christ did become flesh. He did come to redeem. He did, in fact, redeem. And we proclaim that truth so that all who would hear would come to faith in Christ Jesus. The prophet said of this God-man in Isaiah 53, verse 11, the first half of that verse, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. The Apostle Paul, speaking of this in Galatians 4.4, says this, But when the fullness of time came, by the way, I want to stop there for a second. When the fullness of time came, it was no accident. The birth of Christ was specified at a specific point in history. It was according to God's perfect, sovereign, and providential plan that Christ would be born when he was born, where he was born, from whom he would be born. All of that was predetermined by God for that moment in history. So I want you to notice that. The Apostle Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. How did he do it? Born of a woman. Born under the law. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption of sons. How glorious is that? truth that the word became flesh and the word came with a specific purpose and he came to redeem he came to save where would we be had that not happened i'll tell you where we would be we would be damned the second truth john 1 14 the word just didn't merely become flesh But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw how the Word became flesh, but the Word didn't merely become flesh. He did not dwell in some ivory palace. He did not stay in some aloof mountain that people say, Oh, God is up there, God is up there. But He came and He dwelt among us. The Greek word there for dwelt means he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. And it denotes much more than just merely a general notice, uh, 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 a general notion of dwelling. The dwelling is the intimate communion with God. That's the dwelling. Another translation is, he tabernacled among us. Now, if you think about that, and you think about that specific word, it draws the imagery from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God had commanded that you build a tabernacle for him, and that the presence of Almighty God would dwell in the tabernacle. It was called the tabernacle of meaning, and people would go to the tabernacle for the 
for the presence of God. And they were led by the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the Shekinah glory of God as it followed the tabernacle, as it followed the ark, as it followed God around. And I don't think it's coincidence. I think John is being very specific for his Jewish readers. Here, the Son of God, instead of tabernacling in a tent in the wilderness, instead of dwelling in a building, the God, the very God, came down, pitched his tent among us, and he dwelt among us. John's point is that the very living God was among mankind. Here's the great thing. In the New Testament, God exceeded a tent or building. I want you to get this concept. If God, if Christ had never come, if God was still dwelling in a building, then all of us would have to go back to Jerusalem if we needed the presence of God. We would have to find the presence of God. But God transcended even the best of human wisdom and came down and came in the form of a man and tabernacle dwelt among us. He dwelt among us by walking, by breathing, by eating, by working, by traveling, by preaching, by teaching, by healing, and worshiping among us. And God chose to enter his creation he chose to enter his creation not with a veiled presence not hidden but visible visible among his creations that the world would see the eternal glory of god now let me share something else with you now in the new covenant god still dwells among his people We don't have to wait for one day for God to come back and once again and do what he did in the form of Jesus. God still dwells among his people by the indwelling and abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within every single person who has come to repentance and faith in Christ. To this day, believers have the witness of Christ among us. And that is through the Holy Spirit that we can discern between truth and error. It is through the Holy Spirit that we can come into the presence of God. It is through the Holy Spirit that we have power to overcome sin, tear down spiritual strongholds, live victoriously in a crooked and wicked, perverse generation. We are not, if you are in Christ, we are not what we were. We have been created new. Is this what you hear? Concerning Jesus, the birth of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Rather, you hear a romanticized story of little bitty baby Jesus in a manger. Of the mean innkeeper saying, there's no room at the inn. We hear that the true meaning of Christmas is giving. We hear that the true meaning of Christmas is family. We hear that the true meaning of Christmas is sharing, blah, 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 blah. Have mercy on me. I'm going to share something with you now. 
watched a Hallmark Christmas movie. You ever want to see distortion, man? Watch a Hallmark movie. It's a cross between getting a root canal and being knocked out with anesthesia. But of course, at the end of the meeting, there was family and there was all this other stuff. And the actor declares, is this not the true spirit of Christmas? No, it is not. The other day, while perusing the channels, I saw a very big church on TV that had a play. And on the play, there was ballerinas and all this other different stuff. And, and someone comes out and does a robot thing and marching all around. And, and then the invitation goes forth. See, this is what Christmas is about. God gave us the best gift. But you have to take it. Because God wants the best for you. And God gave His Son to give you His very best. And I looked at my wife, and she could testify to this because I annoy her a lot. But I looked at my wife and I said, what do you think of this? As we both sat there. Now listen, you don't have to agree with me, okay? I'm, I'm just going to give you my opinion. This, I'm not dogmatic about this. But I said, to take the house of God and to do this is an abomination. Yes, sir. It's an abomination. See, the true meaning of Christmas, if you want to use that, is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Let's look at the third point. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of God. There's been a measure of controversy regarding this term that is being used, the only begotten. The controversy stems from most of the enemies of the gospel that imply that this means that Christ was a created being and therefore not God, not divine. After contextually reading John 1, it would be ludicrous to surmise that John was referring to Christ as a created being. John calls Christ God, eternal, the agent of creation, the source of life. The whole point of the opening verses of this gospel is that Jesus Christ is different. He's not just a man, but indeed God. Now, the word begotten here is a very interesting word. It does not mean to beget. You know, when you read the the genealogies, and, and this one begat that one, and that one begat, that's not the meaning here. The Greek word here is the word monogenesis. It's a Greek compound word. Mono, one of a class. That's what mono means. It's distinct. It's unique. Genesis is the only one of its kind. 
So the true meaning here is John is referring to the singular uniqueness of Christ. He is the one of a kind. He is the unique one. He is the distinct one. He's in a class all by himself. What's unique about Jesus Christ? Well, he was the Word made flesh. He was the God-man. He had a unique relationship with the Father as the Son within the Godhead. John uses the same term again in John 1.18. Look at John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the monogenesis, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. What is unique about Jesus Christ? He is the full and complete revelation of God. God with us, as the prophet foretold. John's point is that this one is the one who John the Baptist declared that the one who comes after me has a higher rank than I. Jesus Christ stands alone. He is unique. And the Apostle Paul declared in Galatians 4.4, I'll reiterate this. That when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isaiah also spoke about this uniqueness. Jesus spoke about this uniqueness in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am unmistakable. He is the eternal one. He is the divine one. He uses the same word in John 8, 58 as Moses used when he said, Who shall I send? say send me? And God said, I am who I am has sent you. Let me tell you, the Pharisees knew it right then and there because they picked up stones and said, We're going to kill this dude. He's blaspheming. He's blasphemy. Jesus declared that himself. The Apostle Paul declared that as we saw in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17, and the writer of Hebrews declares that in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. With Moses came the law, but the law was not a revelation of God's grace, but rather God's demand for holiness. And the law could not save. Paul makes this point in Romans 8.3. If you've been on Bible study, you're probably sick of me hearing and using this verse. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God's law was designed to demonstrate the unrighteousness of the people in order to show their need for a Savior. The law could not save, nor was anybody able to keep the law in its entirety except for the God-man Jesus Christ. But the reality of grace and truth The full grace, the full truth of God's mercy is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. 
the only begotten, the monogenesis, the unique one. The unique one of a kind of the Father. That's why John says in 1.14, He dwelt among us, we beheld His glory. There was a glory to Christ. John even is referring to the, the time He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus is transfigured and the glory of God descends and Moses and Elijah come to attend to Him and there He is and there He is in all of His splendor. We beheld His glory. And he says the glory of the only begotten from the Father. And what is Christ full of? Grace and truth. What's the true meaning of the first coming of Christ? God became a man. Dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Now, this great topic of the incarnation of Jesus Christ deserves so much more treatment. I mean, you're talking about walking in the stratosphere of theology. The truths contained in Scripture that we covered should force us to reevaluate our approach what is flippantly called Christmas or worse yet the holidays if you're a believer in Jesus Christ listen I cannot emphasize this enough we do not memorialize Christmas we certainly do not worship the holidays we are not pagans we do not worship a season of the year so much for season's greetings. We know that Jesus Christ was not born on December 25th. We know that. We know that things like Christmas trees and others are extra-biblical cultural things. But at this time of year as believers in Christ, we should be drawn back to the uniqueness of Christ and rejoice in the uniqueness of the birth of Christ. Without the birth of Christ, there is no Calvary. Without the birth of Christ, there is no tomb. Without the birth of Christ, there is no empty tomb. Without the birth of Christ, there is no hope of a resurrection. God became flesh. The full revelation of God appeared. The invisible became visible. The unapproachable became flesh. And by the way, we should always remember that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. And why? Why? The unique Jesus Christ, the Holy One, would take upon himself the penalty for sin of all time for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and grant them eternal life and new life in Christ. In short, at the first coming, the birth of Christ, it's all about God's salvation. It's all about the grace that is offered in Christ. To deny that, to confuse that with something else, 
To make it about something else is to rob God of his rightful glory and to diminish the work of Christ. I believe that John said it best in his gospel as he was about to close in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He wrote this, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in the book. By the way, you ever stop and wonder, man, I wish I knew what those were. We only know the little that's revealed to us in the Gospels. But boy, what about all those other many others? But he says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ is consecrated in our hearts. I pray that God would give us such an outpouring of His Spirit during this time that everyone we come in contact with, whether they be a believer whether they be an unbeliever, would be caught by the manifest presence and the joy and the glory of Christ in our life. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this day and we bless you and praise you. Father, we give you glory. Help us, O oh God, help us. Lord, we live in a culture where there is a tsunami of myth, a tsunami of things that are falling against us that we would stand, Father. Lord, we can see our families and we could celebrate, but Lord, may that not be what is preeminent in our lives. But may Jesus Christ be preeminent. And Lord, not just during this month, but every month and every day and every waking hour, cause us to hunger for you, Lord. Cause us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all things will be added, Lord God. Cause us, Lord God, to love you with a, a, a preeminent, intentional love, Lord, for becoming flesh and redeeming us from the curse that we would love you, Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.